0: Welcome to the Healthcare Disparities Podcast. This is our regular exploration of health equity. In part one of our podcast, we discussed how a group of healthcare leaders in Florida worked collaboratively to create and implement the first community health needs assessment for the Jacksonville, Florida community. In addition to partnering to create their first community health needs assessment, they also work together to deliver a coordinated approach to health education for the community. In 2020, like all of us, our group of healthcare leaders were faced with the challenge of the pandemic. So let's rejoin the conversation as we explore ways that the collaborative framework that was established in Jacksonville helped the group to work towards an equitable response to COVID-19.
1: One of the things that that COVID uh, brought out were the significant health disparities. Uh, with regard to both uh, hospitalization, mortality, and just incidents. Did you find that same, uh, th- you know, in your communities, was that the same experience? Was there anything with regard to your collaborative efforts that perhaps allowed you to to do a better job of dealing with the disparities uh, related to COVID? And, and was that at all helpful?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll jump in here. Um, Uh, Bill, and thank you for asking that. I mean, you know, we know that race and other social determinants of health result in a higher uh, rates of illness and death among racial and ethnic minority groups. And the pandemic itself, right, um, brought it even more to light of the evidence, right, of this and the health disparities. And we know that if, you know, one single organization or sector can't can't combat. Health disparities or help address health disparities and bring health equity alone, and that um, we really have to do it together. And so, I'll I'll just share an example of what we we did last year. Um, You know, the partnership has been and is committed to being a part of the solution. And an example of that is in early, mid, probably mid May of 2020, we held a Miss and Misconceptions of COVID 19, um, which was very successful in the community. I think we had over 400, you know, 400 attendees that attended that session. Um, and due to feedback from the session, we realized that there was a want and a need for additional opportunities to have these forums. And then in early summer, we we came together like we naturally do our partnership outside of our, you know, CHNA priorities and, and said, what can we do, right, for the community to t- to continue this conversation? And we developed a four-part racial equity conference series to increase awareness and understanding of the community at large, and for healthcare providers on racial factors that negatively impact, right, the delivery of healthcare um, where health disparities very much exist, and and kind of help break down those barriers. So we engaged with speakers and moderators outside of our healthcare institutions. So we didn't bring our speakers from our healthcare institutions, our medical professionals that can very easily talk about this, but we pulled in local community leaders and national speakers to discuss these topics on the need to increase awareness and empowerment of our health. And some of these topics were advocating for your health, how does race impact health and what can be done to bring health equity, um, a, a addressing a bias in healthcare and that unconscious bias and, and achieving health equity and kind of next steps, right? What are the next steps? We're not going to stop there, right? The attendance collectively, you know, from the four series um, was attending live at 800. Pro- mm-hmm. We were probably reached much more than that because there's over a thousand people that registered for collectively all four, and I'm sure has been forwarded on with recordings. Uh, it concluded in 2020, but we know that's not, uh, you know, that we need to continue the work, but we made a commitment, right, as our partnership, especially in our next community health needs assessment, that we would focus on health equity and sharing data and the health disparities that exist in our community.
3: I would like to give an example to that. So um, before we had the COVID-19 vaccine, when we were facing flu season in 2020 and everyone was concerned, we we don't know, what the flu might bring to our community. We certainly know that if we have a flu season like we've had in the past, that means a lot of beds will be used and we don't need that in the time of COVID. And we also, the, they didn't know what the interaction might be between flu and COVID. And so there was a huge push to get people vaccinated and our the Duval County Medical Society took the lead And they put together a campaign which included the health systems, as well as insurers, as well as others, physician, private practice physicians. And our role in the campaign was to help with the pharmacists to provide vaccine clinics in the community. And so, exactly what Amory said. Anne-Marie had some great relationships in the community that none of our other health systems did, and so she's the one who reached out to those folks and organized flu vaccine clinics and the same thing with Ashley, the same thing with Paul and the same thing with Jessica, we just sort of divided the map and identified who we knew. And we we went to the relationships that we have and we were quite successful with getting vaccine clinics across Northeast Florida, where we were actually taking the flu vaccine to people as opposed to requiring them to get out when it was still a scary time, particularly for our seniors and get, getting them vaccinated
1: you talked about doing the the education and outreach into the community about overcoming and understanding uh you know the disease and things of that nature the the second part of that and and what i've seen is so so we go through that process and now we have the vaccines how did any of that affect how you approached vaccine distribution in other words a lot of the attention was on oh we're going to do the elderly first or we're going to do first responders or teachers or you know whatever but what about the vulnerable communities right that that during the lead up during the the testing and and the diagnosis we knew that there was a disproportionate impact did that translate into how you were going to distribute vaccines and say we have these vulnerable populations we need to focus on them as well that uh, or or was that not part of the conversation so uh,
4: i would say initially day one, I'm talking day one, the goal was just to get it out there, right? Um, our hospital was tapped to be the point um, to receive the vaccine first and and spread it across the other hospitals in the city. I would say day one, we were just, at least here, let's get it out there. Now, not far behind that, day two, we said, all right, look, right, let's look at the data. Let's look at who's the most vulnerable. Um, we have approximately 5,000 patients that are uninsured patients in our community mm-hmm. um, so we clearly had an advantage to reach out to that population so we did some direct marketing and communicating with mm-hmm. them but I, you know to answer your question at uh, really from the day one standpoint we just knew we needed to get it out we needed to get it of course in the hands of our colleagues so they could do their part um, and really spread it around the city. Just remember the geography of our hospitals, all of our hospitals, mm-hmm. were all over the city. So that was the first priority. And as days proceeded, and even today, as we work um, at UF Health around vaccine hesitancy, we are of course are being more targeted in who we are trying to communicate with.
1: And does that involve community-based distribution now? I mean, in the initial phase, and I think to the point you're raising, it was there was this get this out there. And so there was a lot of focus on mass vaccination sites. You know, we were going to have it at a single location. And part of that was also, I think, because of the storage requirements for some of the early, the Pfizer, for example. Um, but now we're starting to see more community-based, smaller, targeted, distribution, administration. Um, is that how your market has evolved? Your communities have evolved that same kind of going from the mass <laughs> distribution now out to more of a community based distribution?
4: So, I mean, I can speak, but definitely my colleagues can chime in. Our hospitals are all giving the vaccine, right? We, The Department of Health is out there only at their um, fixed facilities, but we do have a FQHC, Agape, that has a mobile unit that partnered with our local transportation organization, the Jacksonville Transportation Authority, and they are actually beating the neighborhood, so to speak, and doing that community-based. Because statewide or federal, we had these sites that that came in Mm -hmm. around our city. So the way I the hospitals really looked at it is we got the feds here with us who've helped us with geography. We have the mobile, uh, uh, colleagues out there. So for the most part, unintentionally or not, the hospitals have really stepped back and kept the vaccine at the hospital level and pushed to our patients because our patients represent the city. So if we can get our patients all vaccinated and, and, and their family members. We are at the forefront of mm-hmm. that vaccination um, opportunity.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I was going to bring up the same point, Amory, about you know our federally qualified healthcare clinics that are out there, really in um, into the communities and neighborhoods, um, and providing providing those. And what you know, federal was a lot that came in, right, to help with the influx. In addition to the state, but I think I want to backtrack just a little bit. And Amory alluded to it um, briefly, but you know, initially, right, we're, we wanted to get it out. To people, you know, look at our most vulnerable, um, look at those high-risk um, folks. But I think the piece of it too is looking at our most vulnerable, looking at um, the health disparities, right? Our racial and ethnic minority groups is that there's a lot of mistrust in healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. So we have the vaccine; it's available, but but the question was also if it's available to people, are people going to get it? Right. And so I think that was a focus from a lot of, uh, from each of our healthcare systems, right. That to what, what are the um, concerns, right. Of our community members, what are the myths and misconceptions that are out there? I mean, social, social media is great, but it's also, it can be toxic at times too because there's misinformation that gets out there about it. So, like, um, for example, like Mayo Clinic, we uh, we participated with community partners, our enterprise-wide, which is Arizona and Rochester, where we did a four-part series of um, vaccine hesitancy, the myths and misconceptions, minority, communal, racial and ethnic groups. We did one in Spanish to have more of a conversation from the community with um, our providers to ask questions about it, because you have to get a, you know, you can have it out there. But if people still have those myths and misconceptions in their head, are they really going to get it? And I know other hospital systems, we partnered, you know, with several of the hospital systems to help with healthcare executives, too, to get the information out there um, as well. So I just wanted to bring that up, too, is that that, that was a big focus for, you know, all of us, too, is to, mm-hmm. to try to address the hesitancies.
0: Oh, go ahead, Naldi. I just wanted to
3: make a comment, too. I think all of us experienced. um a sense of urgency. And some, of course, some of that was because of the devastation of the disease. And so we wanted people to be vaccinated as soon as possible. We also had mandates from our state that we had to work within, and we were getting pressure from the state level to get people vaccinated, get people vaccinated. And so Bill, I think that's what led to a lot of what you described as these max vaccination clinics, these max, um, these sites that can vaccinate hundreds of people in a day, a thousand people in a day. And so the way we at Baptist Health tried to address underserved populations, of course, keeping within the governor's mandate, is in partnership with the community organizations we work with. So we reached out to them and said, can you help us get the word out that we have vaccines available? And then we partnered with, Ann Marie mentioned them before, Jacksonville Transportation Authority. Authority. They stepped up. That organization said, we wanna do whatever we can to make sure people do not have any problem getting to a vaccine site and then getting back home and so they reached out to our partners and provided transportation from our partner organizations to our mass vaccination clinic and then back again. So it really was I would say a community effort. You know, COVID was something that it doesn't matter what what your logo is on the on the side of your building or on your vehicle. Everyone had to address this because it was killing all of us, right. and it had a disproportionate impact as well. And so we really felt this urgency to do whatever we could to make a difference.
5: I, I think it's it seems like such a simple um, kind of such a simple thought, but it I think it really is complicated in how it's implemented. But we really uh, have open, transparent conversation among this among many things. So, and as Melanie said, as she said Amory, you know people were doing these COVID vaccination sites. We really Ascension Saint Vincent really did not have the opportunity to go into the community with vaccinations. But what we could do to support was get the word out.
4: Mm-hmm. We
5: have a very well connected, vast faith community network, and it, Baptist does too. Um, you know, uh, Mayo is in East Side, Amory, Newtown. Springfield, there's so many of us kind of embedded in those specific communities that we can communicate. We can share that information. You know, this was the most important public health initiative that we could all support. It was all hands on deck. And many of us were at those COVID vaccination sites, uh, doing paperwork, helping to support, getting people in, just that process. So what we could do to support, um, rather than in a clinical way, was that open communication
0: and that support to get word out. Absolutely. And hearing um, the experiences of of our collaborative and and partnership team members, Bill, I'm reminded of what I keep hearing every day on the news, and that's the lack of a coordinated approach in public health across the country. And here we have this very well-established partnership really focused on public health right um, that laid the foundation and they continue to um, uh, continue to well how should I say expand upon leverage, grow those relationship, And no one could have envisioned a pandemic, right? But to have that model, that process, that trust, those significant resources already in place where you could pull levers and come together to address this unprecedented need in the community is quite remarkable and inspirational.
1: It it is. And so my curiosity now is... We're we're not through with the pandemic. Obviously, I think hopefully we're we're well into uh, closer to the end. But a, a critical next step, as I see it, is an after action report. You know, to go back and say what did we do right, what didn't we get right, what can we do to make sure? Because while the pandemic may have taken us by surprise, I think we have to presume that it's only a matter of time before there's another pandemic or another type of event along these lines. So do you guys have plans or would you anticipate some kind of a collaborative after action analysis and then recommendations for what to do to be better prepared the next time something like this occurs?
4: I actually think some of that happens um, of course, amongst us. But I think some of our colleagues in our practices are doing that already. So, okay. for example, supply chain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our pharmacies are all talking to each other about, you know, the inventory of vaccine and how to distribute and so forth. So. And our
0: emergency rooms.
4: And, oh, yes. The, you know, the emergency room. We all are in an HR state of being right now where we're all struggling with staffing. So our HR partners. So I wouldn't want us to um, feel like we're the only ones at the game. We have a lot of partners across our institutions that, you know, maybe Jacksonville is unique, you know, um, but they all talk. They all, mm-hmm. all of our subject matter experts across our institution talk. And I can guarantee, with despite the fact that I'm guessing, I can guarantee that our colleagues. I know they've been talking but I know they are going to continue. I suspect they will continue those conversations.
1: Yeah. Right. Unfortunately, and I'm not as optimistic as you that this kind of collaboration and conversation is occurring in other communities.
0: Oh, but, wow. what, but what an example that we can share with, yes. the, with the world right in the country. And you all have provided this absolutely fabulous opportunity for that sharing and learning quite broadly, we have a pretty significant audience for Movement is Life. Um, So we are pleased to partner with you and promote this and the work that you have done. I am am going to thank each of you um, as we close the session. It's just been our pleasure to have this unique opportunity to hear about this unique work and model and collaborative that you have put together and sustained in Jacksonville. And as a member of this community, you're making a difference. We see it, we hear it every day. So thank you so very, very much. Really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. Thank Thank
0: you you. so much, thank you. Bye-bye, thank you guys, bye-bye. Bye. This concludes our two-part series on collaborative health needs assessment. Thank you to our panelists once again, and thank you, our listeners, for joining us for another episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. We hope you have already subscribed to our podcast on iTunes and will join us again. I'm Michelle Leake saying goodbye for now.